Lord, we come with thanksgiving and with praise for all that you are. Father, for all that you have done, for all that you're doing, and all that you're going to do in Christ and in us and through us. So, Father, we, we say thank you. Lord, we also ask for your help. Lord, we are reminded over and often that we are dependent on you. Father, we are in need for, of you, and we are in need of your help. We need your help, Lord, as we speak. We need your help as we listen and as we interpret and as we apply your word. So, Father, please help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, and thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, before we begin, you have some notes uh, if you're inclined to take notes, you have some notes in the uh, middle of your table along with a few pens. So um, there's notes on one side and then the discussion questions that we'll be looking at later are on the uh, back side. Uh, my name is Scott Minema. I serve here at DSC as the Minister of Counseling and Community Groups. I've been asked to lead us in... Uh, to think about and to discuss a gospel man and understanding oneself. And so, you know, for a few moments after I was asked to, to do this, I, after I received the request, I kind of marveled at the irony that I was being asked to lead us to think about something that, frankly, for most of my life, I've struggled with. Um, in other words, I've struggled for the better part of my adult life um, trying to understand myself and, and how others uh, view me. And so what happened is that as I began to understand how the one who created me understand, understands me, how does he view me, view me, that became, to say the least, it became a game changer for me. And so once God began to rescue me from that and living in, you know, in light of how the world sees me and their value system and living in light of that, once God began to rescue me from that, that began to change everything. So let me, uh, let me ask you that question. How do you see yourself? I could ask it another way. How do you desire for others to see you? Think about that for just a minute. How do you view yourself? How do you desire for other people to view you or to see you. How you answer that question says a lot about how you live out this brief life that we've been entrusted with. It says a lot about how you approach people in your life, how you approach relationships in your life. It says a lot about how you deal with the circumstances of your life and the situations of your life. Your answer to these questions in a large part reveals your identity or how you view your identity. For most of us, our answer to that question usually is in one of three areas. Area one, it has to do with our, as men, has to do with maybe our vocation or, you know, we could say, you know, your title. And uh, we view ourselves or we want others to view us uh, through our through our title or through our vocation. So I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm the vice president of research. I'm a teacher. I'm a cop. I'm a fill-in-the-blank. 
I manage my own business. Maybe, well, I'm unemployed. And your, how you view yourself or how you think other people view you is through your lack of a vocation. The second area that many men view themselves through is through their accomplishments, what they have accomplished, what they have done. Maybe it's, maybe it's athletic ability. Maybe it's a specific talent. Uh, perhaps it's previous things that you've accomplished at your, at your place of employment. Perhaps it's not in what you accomplished, but what you didn't accomplish or in your, in your failures. Uh, maybe it's in, maybe it's in uh, you're convicted of a crime and you spent time in prison and you think of yourself in light of that. You think others view you in light of that. Maybe it's an addiction. The Bible has a word for addiction. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But maybe your view of yourself or how you think others view you is because of past sins or because of addiction. But it's through things that you have done or perhaps not done. The third area is to a lesser degree, is what has been done to you. I've met a number of people over the years whose identity, how they view themselves, how they believe other people view them, is through the things that have been done to them. Perhaps they were abused when they were younger, and they believe that that, that is who they are, and they live their life. They view themselves, they live their life through that. Perhaps it was it, perhaps it was through something their parents had said to them over and often, or teachers had said to them over and often, you, you're worthless, um, you're not going to amount to anything. So they've just grown up with that idea of who they are, that, that they're worthless, that they're not going to accomplish anything. They think other people view them as worthless. But it's usually one of, one of these three areas. So in the time that we have this morning, in the time we have remaining, let's spend some time looking at how the Creator views us. We will begin by, first by considering God's original design for our identity and purpose. That's number one. Number two, we're then going to look at sin's infection on our identity and purpose. The third area then we're going to look at is how Christ's death, resurrection, how the gospel redeems our identity and purpose. And then the fourth area we're going to look at is, so what? What, what difference does it make? What does an identity in Christ look like for the gospel man? So you might be thinking, you know, why is this important? Here's why it's important. Because when we see ourselves accurately in the mirror of God's word, it changes everything. It's a game changer. It'll change our identity. It'll change how we view ourselves. It'll change how we expect others to view us. It's going to change how you approach the relationships in your life. It's going to change how you interpret the circumstances and the situations of your life. It'll change how you live in relationship with people in your, at work, at home, in the church, in community. It changes everything. It's a game changer. So let's begin first by looking at God's design for your identity. And, you know, the best place to look at this, if you want to turn to it, is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're going to move pretty quick, but I'm going to, I'll read that now. Then 
God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now think about this. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that, that lives in perfect community and perfect relationship and perfect fellowship with one another, created you to image God. Think about it. Nothing else in creation, nothing else was created by God to image him. And so practically, this means that God created us to reflect him. Just like a mirror reflects the image in it, we were created to reflect the image of God. So in a culture where we spend way too much time looking in the mirror, we should be reminded that we are to mirror God to others. He created us to reflect his goodness and his glory to those that we come in contact with. So we could say it this way, that we were created to be visible representatives of the invisible God. Let me say it again. You were created to be a visible representative of the invisible God. And so that, that involves every part of us. That involves our minds, that involves our emotions, that involves our will, that involves our behavior. Our, our entire person was created visible representative of the invisible God. Man was created to be servants of God for the, for the purpose to bring his rule and to reflect his glory to his creation according to his Being created in the image of God had absolutely everything to do with how our first earthly father, Adam, lived out his life and how he lived out the moments of his life, how he lived out the relationship and his purpose. That was his identity. Adam was created to be a visible representative of the invisible God. God's intent was that when creation, all of creation experienced and encountered Adam, that they would encounter Adam's God. That was God's purpose. God's purpose wasn't for Adam to build his own kingdom, to make a name for himself, or to do his own thing, or to find his own purpose. All of that had been given to Adam. It's like, it's like God said to Adam, Adam, I love you. I've provided everything you needed. He gave Adam a purpose. He gave him instruction. And he asked him one thing. He said, trust me. All you may eat of every tree in the garden but one. It's like he said to Adam, Adam, look, you have life. You have me. You have all of these provisions. You have purpose. Just trust me. Obey me. If you do, you will live. But if you don't, you will die. Well, you know the rest of the story. Our first father, Adam, had an identity crisis. He forgot who he was. He forgot his purpose. He forgot to exercise headship, loving headship. Over 
He failed to protect his wife. He submitted himself to the created rather than to the creator. He forgot God's word. He forgot God's good provision. He failed to trust God. He forgot that he was a servant of the Most High God. And his sin had a significant effect on his identity. And his sin had a significant effect on the identity of his offspring. So in other words, sin has infected all of Adam's offspring, and including their identity and purpose. So, so how is that? You know, how, is, how has Adam's sin affected my identity? How has Adam's sin affected my purpose? Let's look at that. We're going to, you want to turn ahead to Ephesians 2. That would be, that would be helpful. We're going to spend most of our time in Ephesians going forward. So um, you may want to turn to Ephesians 2 for just a minute. But think about it. Sin had this radical on the image and identity of man. Man lost sight of the purpose for which they were created. Man's chief end was to glorify God and to enjoy him. That was why man was created. And man's purpose, again, was to be a visible representative of the invisible God. Living to glorify God and enjoy him was the core of all goodness, was the core of all morality. Pride and selfishness crept in and is the essence of the fall. Pride and, es- pride and, and selfishness is, the, is, is at the essence of the fall. And what follows are all these other sins against God. In all ways, sin is turning in upon oneself, which is confirmed in how we live our lives. We minimize our shortcomings. We seek all these special favors and opportunities in life. We want an extra edge that no one else has. We, we display vigilance when it comes to our own needs, but we become apathetic oftentimes to the needs around us. In short, we place ourselves on the throne of our life, usurping God's role. We place ourselves as rulers of our own life. Relationships, oh, they're important, but oftentimes they're only important for what I can get. They're only important for how they serve me as opposed to how I might serve them. In short, we became enslaved to sin. That's, that's the Bible word for addiction, enslaved to sin. Our identity and our purpose was turned inward. That's what happened. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, if you're there. It says, and now, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, the rest of mankind. Say, what what does all that mean? Well, verse 1, spiritually dead, here's what that means. Among other things, it means that pride and selfishness ruled. Pride and selfishness ruled. It means that in verse 2, we, were, we imitated the ways of the world, which are the ways of the evil one. We wanted to look like the world. We wanted to imitate the world. 
We wanted to have what they had. We wanted to live like they lived. We, we live for our own purposes. We live for our own passion. We live for our own desires. In other words, life is all about you. Life is all about me. That's what the infection of sin does. Verse 3, we're enemies of God. We were objects of his wrath. But something changed. Something glorious changed. Before we look at what changed, let me just take a minute and introduce to you the book of, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, as you may recall, we just finished in the book of Acts, and Ryan, had, in fact, just this last Sunday, told us that Paul had wrote four epistles from prison. Ephesians was one of those prison epistles. Paul loved the Ephesians, and the Ephesians people loved Paul. The book of Ephesians was written to the churches in and around Ephesus and around the, the surrounding community. And uh, Ephesus was, was, wish we had a lot more time to unpack it, but Ephesus was a lot like culture today, and it was an amazing place. It wasn't as big as Rome. If Rome, if Rome was like London or New York, Ephesus was like Chicago or L.A., but it was, it was something to behold. But I think the example of Ephesus is that Christianity and the gospel can flourish in a difficult and pagan culture and that Christians can maintain their identity in Christ in, in those kinds of cultures for generations by the grace of God. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians in part to affirm their identity in Christ and as a means of strengthening them and encouraging them. Said another way, Paul wrote the Ephesians to remind them, chapters 1 through 3, to remind them of God's love for them. And then chapters 4 through 6, how then they ought to live in relationship with one another. Paul understood that we are defined by who we are in Christ, not what we fail to do for Christ. Christ defines who we are by who he is, and what he has done for us, and in us, and through us. Understanding this is so important, and it's so urgent. And so the passage, verses 1 through 14, that Dave read earlier, and that you read along, those two words, in Christ, or the variation of it, change the world. They're the summary, they're the essence, they're the totality of a believer's identity. Let me put it this way, either... Your identity is in Christ or your identity is idolatry. Those are, the two, those are the two choices. So in the rest of our time together, let's look at who we are as a result of our union with Christ. When we talk about this idea of union with Christ, um, in, in speaking of identity, Jesus, in John 15, 5, and you don't have a turn there, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our entire salvation, everything that comes with the salvation package, if you will, is rooted in this theological term called union with Christ. But Paul doesn't use the word union with Christ. What Paul uses in all of his epistles are these two short words, in 
Christ, or a variation that we even saw in chapter 1, in him, in the beloved. But all of these are central to the book of Ephesians. Um, so central, in fact, to Ephesians is the idea in, of being in Christ that it opens with these first 14 verses. That In the, in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence. It's a benediction that while serving as a praise to the glory of the grace of God, verse 5 and 6, it's really a, it recounts the glories of salvation in Christ. And so, in fact, that the idea of being in Christ, it, it just, as you saw, it just saturated the, those 14 verses that you read with, with Dave. So, as I said earlier, something happened to our identity. That identity was enslaved. It was turned, but it was redeemed at the Christ. And what Ephesians does for us, Ephesians provides us with some glorious realities regarding how that looks. So let's do this. Let's, let's look at a gospel man's identity in Christ. Hey, Chris, is, am I doing something wrong? Okay. Do you want me to do anything different? You're hitting your Okay. So let's... Um, so we're going we're gonna to kind of do this, we're going to do this 30,000 foot flyover of Ephesians 1 through 3, and then later on verses, uh, chapters 3 through 6. So I'm not going to reread those 14 verses, but look at Ephesians 1, and we're going to be in, these, in the first 14 verses. And we're going to look at a gospel and identity in Christ. So if you look at first one, verse 1, Verse 1 says, you're a saint. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. You are redeemed, you are renewed in Christ. Take a moment and just ponder that amazing and marvelous and glorious reality. You're a saint. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what others have done to you. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what others think. The creator of the universe says you're a saint. You're in Christ. You're not a saint because you've done anything right. You're not a saint because of what you've done. You're a saint because of what Jesus did. You're a saint because of Jesus' goodness, of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the saint, and because you are in Christ, you are a saint. Ask the Holy Spirit to take that truth and to deeply root that in, into your heart so it'll nourish the fruit of your life. Remember Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Romans 8 talks about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. You are not because you are in Christ and you're a saint. So you're, you're a saint, but you're also blessed. Verses 3 through 14 talk about how blessed we are. Not like kind of definition of being blessed, but so much more and so much bigger. Sometimes we're so focused on our desired blessings that we fail to stop and thank God 
by remembering the blessings that we already have in Christ. Paul models this idea and reality of gratitude for us early in Ephesians as he's in these verses as he recounts the unbelievable eternal blessings that every believer has in Christ. And he gives us in the at least seven ways that we're blessed. In fact, Tom Schreiner, talking about these, these 14 verses, said this. He said, the diversity of expression to describe being in Christ in this one long sentence, right, verses 3 through 14, is a And the sheer repetition of the formula indicates it is crucial. So what are these seven blessings that we see in these 14 verses? First, first one we see is the blessing of holiness. The blessing of holiness. For the Christian, holiness is both positional as well as practical. In, in Christ, our position before God is holy. It's, it's without blame. Martin Luther was fond, really fond, of calling Jesus' work on the cross. He always referred to it as the great exchange, um, where our sin and our unrighteousness went to Christ, and Christ's righteousness and holiness came to us. And it was Jesus who suffered and died in our place, and his righteousness came to, came to us. So the result is that God now graciously sees us as he sees Christ, holy and without blame. Practically, what does this mean? It means that we're given new desires. It means that we're empowered by the Spirit to live out those desires in a holy life. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin, but what it means is that we can live in a way that increasingly reflects the holiness of Christ and the effects of his blessing in our life. So the blessing of holiness. We also see five, the blessing of being predestined. The blessing of being predestined. If you're in Christ, God has chosen and predestined you to his love. He has chosen and predestined you to enjoy his grace, to be his friend forever. Predestination allows us to trust in the sovereignty of God. Even when the world around us doesn't make sense, even when things aren't going our way, even when things seem to be crashing down because God is good and he has good plans for us, even, even through the evil in our, of our sin and other sin, God predestined our redemption in love. God is obligated to no one, but he's chosen to save us. If you're in Christ, then you're on God's predestined path to an everlasting relationship with him. God has chosen to know you, to love you, to seek you, to forgive you, to embrace you, to, to befriend you. You have the blessing of being predestined. You also have the blessing of being adopted. You have the blessing of being adopted. If you're in Christ, God has adopted you into his family, and we get to call him father. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for father is used about 14 times and is very, um, best way to explain it, it's, it's, it's not very, it's very formal. And um, it's very impersonal. And yet we get to the New Testament and Christ changed everything because he spoke of his father more than 60 times. And it was very intimate. 
the way that he spoke of Father. So following Jesus' example, we refer to God as Father because we're in Christ and we're adopted. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this idea of adoption. He said, a man, when he adopts a child, sometimes is moved thereto by its extraordinary beauty or at other times by its intelligent manners and winning disposition. But beloved, when God passed by the field in which we were lying, he saw no tears in our eyes till he put them there himself. He saw no contrition in us until he had given us repentance. And there was no beauty in us that could induce him to adopt us. On the contrary, we were everything that was repulsive. And if he had said when he passed by, thou art cursed, be lost forever, it would have been nothing but what we might have expected from a God who had been so long provoked and whose majesty had been so terribly insulted. But no, he found a rebellious child, a filthy, frightful, ugly child. He took it to its bosom and he said, sinful though thou art, thou art comely in my eyes through my son Jesus. Unworthy though thou art, yet I accept his robe, and in thy brother's garments I accept thee. And taking us, all unholy and unclean, just as we were, he took us to be his, his children, his forever. Men, we have the blessing of being adopted. We also have the blessing of redemption in verse 7. Apart from being in Christ, we, we're slaves to sin. That's Bible for addiction. That's what the Bible calls addiction, enslaved to sin. So in Christ, you're redeemed. Whatever has enslaved you, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or food or gambling or fears or something else, Jesus has redeemed you. You no longer have to be enslaved by such things. You are, if you're in Christ, you're no longer enslaved to those things. You can put your sin to death. You can walk away from whatever enslaved you. And you can enjoy, you can enjoy a new life to worship Christ freely. The blessing of redemption. We have, look at verse 7, the blessing of forgiveness. If you're in Christ... You are totally and completely and eternally forgiven. Think about this. What, what deep regrets do you have? What, what stuff from your past haunts you? What things about your past just keep coming up in your mind over and over again? What words have you spoken? What, what deeds have you, have you done? What motives have you held? What lies have you told? What lies have you believed? What harm have you caused? What people have you grieved? What shame have you brought? What have you done to try to appease your conscience? Maybe you've, uh, you've made a deal with God. Maybe you've blamed others. Maybe you've minimalized it. Maybe you've, you've tried to hide it. Maybe you've tried to you know, pay God back or maybe even punish yourself. Listen, whatever you've done, whatever you've done, if it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, Jesus died for it all, and he lives to forgive it all. You're forgiven. God doesn't hold your sin against you if you're 
in Christ. He isn't going to punish you. The punishment has already been borne by Christ. He loves you in spite of your sin. You have the blessing of forgiveness. You also have the blessing of grace, verse 7. If you're in Christ, you are a recipient of God's eternal grace. His saving grace has innumerable benefits to this life, but it also provides infinite benefits beyond this life in that it reconciles us to God through Christ. It frees us up to spend eternity enjoying his presence as holy and blameless. You know this, Paul spoke of grace more than any other New Testament writer. In fact, Paul spoke of grace over a hundred times. Every one of his epistles opens with grace and closes with grace. Paul was overcome by the grace of God. If you're in Christ, you are graced. You're chosen by grace. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. You're gifted by grace. You're empowered by grace. You're matured by grace. You're sanctified by grace. You persevere by grace. And one day, one day, by God's grace, you're going to see Jesus face to face as a friend and spend eternity with him forever by grace. Man, we have the blessing of grace. We also have the blessing, seventh blessing here, verse 13, the blessing. If we're in Christ, we now belong to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the blessings that await us as his possession, as, as our inheritance. Basically, here's what this means. This means that all the, the really small joys that we experience now as, as being in Christ, maybe it's the fellowship with other believers, or maybe it's the, the singing together with other believers. Um, it's, it's the you know, listening to the preaching of the word those are all just little, little tiny foretastes of what it's going to be like in eternity. The best days of our life here, the best, very, very best in Christ are only a foretaste of the eternal life to come. And it's kind of just to whet our, to whet our appetite. And so if you're in Christ, if I'm in Christ, you're a saint you're blessed. You're blessed in a multitude of ways. And third, you're loved. You're loved. Now, you might be thinking, hey, you know what? We just read through these 14 verses. We've been working through this. I don't see the word love there anywhere. And you're right. It's not there. But it's there. It's all over these first 14 verses. In fact, you could make a really good argument that the reason Paul wrote the book of Ephesians was because of love. The word love is everywhere throughout the book of Ephesians. In fact, the word love in either its noun form or its verb form appears 20 times throughout the, the book of Ephesians. So, you know, we're, we'd, if we had time, we'd, you know, we, God's love for us, God's love for Christ, our love for one another, our love for Christ, Christ's love for us. But just a, for a moment, fast forward to chapter 5 and and. We're going to, we're not going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading through the verses 22 through 33, but that's where I want you. Verses 22 through 33. And you're going to say, wait, 
chapter 5, 22 through 33. I know those verses. Those are the verses on, on marriage, on, on husbands love your wives, and, and they are. And they're great, and they're so instructive and so helpful. But I want you to see something in these verses. In fact, I want you to see something specifically in verse 32. So as Paul is un, unpacking the beauty of a marriage relationship and how it should function according to God's design. Here's what he says in verse 32. He says, the mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so can we take a minute and just glance at these verses? And because they're so, before we talk about a husband and a wife's relationship with each other in marriage, we have to first look at these verses as Paul intended and we get our instruction, we, 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 we get our um, design for marriage from Christ's design, Christ's love for the church. So we talk about that we are loved. We're going to look at these, these verses very quickly and look at just the way, some ways that, that Christ loves us. And these are going to be helpful. You know, the next, in fact, we won't spend a lot of time talking about um, a man's relationship to his wife because the next gospel seminar is going to be on, on that. So this is kind of going to tee us up a little bit for that. But let's look at, I'm not, again, I'm not going to read all these verses, but verses 22 through 24, you know what it's, it says? That Jesus loves you as your servant leader. Jesus loves you as your servant leader. Jesus took the sin that was our fault, and he made it his. He didn't blame. He took it on himself. By dying in our place for our sins, Jesus took our punishment. He absorbed it. Practically, this means that God will never punish those who are in Christ. Now, to be sure, we're, we might reap the consequences of our sin. To be sure, Christ may discipline us because he loves us, but never for punishment, never for retribution. The price for our sin was paid once and for all by Jesus because as our leader, as our, as our head, he's made us his responsibility and he has loved us unconditionally in the midst of our ugliness, in the midst of all of our faults. He loves us as our servant leader. He also loves us as our savior. Look at verse 25. Jesus loves you. Jesus delivers us from the awful and horrendous sin and, and, and fates that our sin covers, that our sin causes. Sin brings death in every conceivable way. James talks about how, how, how sin brings death and destruction. It always does. Health, joy, friendships, families, fruitfulness, all are destroyed, all die because of sin. And one day we'll physically die as well because of sin. As our Savior, though, Jesus delivers us from the countless miseries and tragedies that our sin causes. And he, he takes away even the sting of, of our death. And he promises us new and everlasting life in him and life to come. Because Jesus is our Savior, we don't need to foolishly trust in functional saviors or lose hope. Jesus loves you as your Savior. Verse 25 Jesus loves you as your provider. As your provider, Jesus gave himself to you. His comfort, his safety, his 
his schedule weren't his highest priority. In humility, he set aside his rights in life in service to his bride, the church. Today, Jesus remains the same, and he continues to give of himself for our good. So he loves you as your provider. Verse 26, he loves you as your sanctifier and cleanser. He loves you as your sanctifier and cleanser. Jesus is patient with us. He never gives up, gives up on us. He always seeks to make us more holy. Listen, Jesus isn't sick of you. He's not done with you. He's, you, you, you. You haven't frustrated him. You haven't overwhelmed him. He is sanctifying you. He's cleansing you. He has hope for you. He's not finished, and he won't be finished until you see him face to face as his friend. He loves you as your sanctifier and cleanser. He also loves you as he nourishes you and cherishes you. Look, Jesus loves you enthusiastically. He doesn't love you begrudgingly. He doesn't love you regretfully. He continually reveals to us through the scripture the areas where he longs to help us to grow and change into his image. He, does, he, does, he doesn't do this by standing back, by complaining, by telling us all the things that are wrong with us, by blaming us. He doesn't do it by making you know, all of these demands, but rather by lovingly placing life in us through the Holy Spirit. So that's just a brief look at what happened to us and what happened, what changed its salvation. A brief look at who we are in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you are loved. You are blessed in so many ways. You are a saint. But what difference should that make? How does that affect our purpose as gospel men? I think it changes everything. I think it changes our purpose for living. In fact, that's what Ephesians 4 through 6 helps us to understand. If we're like, if we're in Christ, then our purpose for living life is going to continue to look more like Christ and less like our old self and less like the world. So what is the gospel man's purpose if they are in Christ? Let's, let's look at that. Let's look at a gospel man's purpose in Christ. So Ephesians 4 Verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be. I'm not going to read all of these, but I'm going to read the first three here to begin with because this is instructive for us. Paul says, I therefore, he's just got done with the first three chapters just talking about all that we have, all that we are in Christ. And now, chapter 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what's a gospel man's purpose in Christ? Well, the first thing we see here is to walk in unity. I see that in, the, in, these, in these first 16 verses. Say, so what, what does that look like? Well, one, I see humility in verse 2. Humility is the opposite of pride. Think about it. Pride thinks mostly of oneself, but a gospel man is humble. 
He thinks about himself and he considers the glory of God and the good of others more. He stewards his resources for God, along the lines of God's priorities and for God's glory and for God's mission and for others and less on himself and his own comfort and ease and entertainment. Think about this. Pride compares us to other sinners. That's what pride does. Humility compares us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pride covets the success of others. Pride just is envious of the success of others. Humility celebrates the success of others. Pride is about me. Pride is always about me. Always has been, always will be. It's always about me. Humility is about God and others. Big contrast. About my glory. It's about the fame of my name. Humility is about God's glory, about the fame of his name. Pride causes separation from God. Humility causes dependence on God. Pride causes me to do things in my own strength. Humility causes me to do things and understand that I can only do things in God's strength. Pride says, I'm not going to forgive you. Pride says, until you do these things, I'm not going to forgive you because you've hurt me so bad. Humility says, because of all that I've been forgiven in Christ, for the, just the multitude of things, I can't help but forgive you. That's the difference. There's a big difference between pride and humility. So, so part of what it means to walk in unity is to, walk in, is to be in humility. Another thing it means is to do the work of ministry and the building up of the body. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You say, well, what, what's, what's, what does that mean, right? What does is, what is the work of ministry mean? So here's, here's, listen, the work of ministry, here's what this says. Isn't the job, isn't the role exclusively of the pastors and of the elders? Here's what it says. If you're in Christ, the work of the ministry is for all believers. That's the work of the ministry. It's for all. And so what does it mean? What does is, what is the work of the ministry entail? Let me just give you a couple of things. Number one, it means mission. It means the gospel. So Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go and make disciples. That's the only mission, men, we've been given. We've been given no other mission. So part of, part of what it means to be a gospel man, part of what it means to walk in unity is to be, to be about ministry. It's about, it's about proclaiming the gospel. It's about making disciples. It's part of what it is. Um, so I have to ask you the question. Can I love you enough to ask you the question, who are you discipling? Who's on your radar as far as it to, that, that's hurting, that needs, that needs the gospel? Um, I could ask it this way. In what ways do you think, strategize, and engage people in these, in, you know, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, even people you see around here? Um, strategize and engage people in, you know, in loving obedience to our mission. Another thing from the text is the one another's, the building up of the body. 
the edifying of the body of Christ. We are, we are one body. So what ways are serving, what ways are you serving one another? This, these one another things, this, it's used over 45 times in the New Testament, the one another's. And so, in fact, let me just show you real quick. Even here in Ephesians, there's five places these one another's are used. Um, chapter 4, verse 2, be patient, bearing with one another in love. 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Um, 4.32, forgiving one another. Uh, chapter 5.19, speak to one another with psalm, hymns, spiritual songs. 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence in Christ. Let me ask you this. Are you in community group? If you're not in community, here's why I'm asking. Part of, part of equipping, part of the one another's is, is being involved in community. And I don't, I don't know how I can be involved in these one another's and, and, and enjoy the blessings and the joy and be obedient to all these one another's if I just come to church on Sunday morning and go. There might be a few of these, but if we're not living in community with one another and community groups are imperfect, but there are, that's how we do community. So if you're not in community group, I'm so thankful. If you're in community group, I'm thankful that you're in community group. If you're not in community group, let me just encourage you to, to visit a community group and to be in community group. But that's, a, a gospel man walks in unity by humbling himself, by doing the work of the ministry, by building up of the body. A gospel man also walks in holiness. A gospel man also walks in holiness. Uh, verse 17, but now... Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 23, and to be, jump down there, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does it mean to walk in holiness? Well, Love to unpack that more, but here's what, here's what I see in this verse. It means that they don't give their mind over to useless things. That's what it says. Um, they don't give their mind to useless things, but rather they labor to put on the mind of Christ. Listen to me. The battle, your battle and my battle is for our mind. Because where my mind goes is where my time goes. And where my time goes is where my life goes. I could say it another way. Where your mind goes is where your emotions go. And where your emotions go is where your, your will and be, ultimately your behavior goes. The battle is for the mind. There is, the Bible is filled with challenges to renew your mind. Romans 12, 2. Philippians 5, 8. Ephesians chapter 4, we just read. The battle is for your mind. Nowhere in scripture does it say be renewed in your behavior. Be renewed in your emotion. The battle is for the mind. Let me ask you this. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What we feed our mind, the battle's for the mind. That's why we have to constantly be renewed in our thinking talk more about that in a minute, but our thinking determines our behavior. Our thinking determines 
what comes out of our mouth. I mean, look at Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearer. That comes right after this idea of being, putting on the mind of Christ. That's why in verse 25, we speak truth, not lies. That's why in verse 28, we work to give. The reason we work is in order to give to others versus stealing and keeping what we have to ourselves. So anyway, I got to move on, but the gospel man walks in holiness. The gospel man also walks in love. The gospel man also walks in love. Um, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexually immora- but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Gospel man walks in love. Walking in love is thinking about and and willingly giving yourself sacrificially over to the needs of others without expecting anything in return. That's why sexual sin, that's why pornography should never be part of a gospel man's walk. Sexual sin, pornography, is the, is the total antithesis of what it means to be a, a gospel man should walk. It's, it's the total antithesis of being loved in verse, of loving in verse 3. It's not fitting for someone who is a saint. So, you know, we could spend a lot of time on the, even on, on these verses and in verses 22 through 33 talking about how gospel men love their wives, but more on that next, next quarter. So a gospel man walks in love. A gospel man also walks in wisdom. A gospel man walks in wisdom. We're almost done. Look at... Uh, look at uh, Five verse, chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of this time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a gospel man walks in wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. So Ryan's getting ready to kick off Ecclesiastes. You read through Ecclesiastes, you get to chapter 12, the very end of all of that, and he comes to the very last verses, and he says this. He says, let us hear the conclusion to this whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, whether it is good or whether it is evil. So fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. How do I get the fear of the Lord? Well, it's, it's being in the word. I'm going to talk more about being in the word in a minute. Look, what, look at verse 15. 
Also, he talks about what does it mean to walk in wisdom, making the best of time. In, in, in fact, in, in, like in the King James, it talks about redeeming. The word is redeeming the time. But gentlemen, there is an urgency to what we're talking about. Life is short. Life is very short. Eternity is long, very long. This year marks the 30th year of my father's passing. I love my father. My father loved me. We had a great relationship. He was a Christian by God's grace. His last few months of his life were horrific. In the last, the last week that he was, we, we had some, some sweet fellowship. A few nights, probably four nights before he passed, and his passing was imminent, I, I just asked him if he was, if he was afraid to die. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. He said, I'm ready to go. But he said, I have two regrets. And it kind of caught me blindsided. And he said, he said the first one was that he regretted that he wasn't going to be able to see my boys grow up. The second one, he said, surprised me. Got 26 years old. And he said this. He said, I regret that I, that I didn't do more for the Lord. Later on, I thought about how how crazy that is. I mean, of all the things, I mean, he didn't talk about, he wished he'd have made more money. He wished he'd have had, you know, that he would have spent more time at work or had a better job or a better truck. He didn't, he didn't say all that. The one thing he said, my dad was a truck driver, but he said, I wish I would have done more for the Lord. I thought, man, that is, that is, that's instructive. So walking in wisdom, redeeming the time. He says, look in verse 17. He says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So what's the opposite of that? Be, if, you're gonna, if you don't understand what the will of the Lord is, you're being foolish. That's the opposite. But he says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord? Here, let me tell you what the will of the Lord is. And I don't know what the individual will of the Lord is in for a lot of particulars, but here's what I know. One, I know that in Matthew 28, we were told to make disciples. That is our king's will. I know that. You know that. That is the will of the Lord. Number two, I know that the will of the Lord is for you, if you're in Christ, and for me, if I'm in Christ, to become like Christ, to be imitators of Christ. That is God's will for you. Matthew, Matthew, Romans 20, Romans 8, 29 says that God is using everything in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything he's using to make you into the image of Christ. That is God's will for you, to make you to the image of Christ and to live for a purpose. The purpose is the mission of making disciples. Um, what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Look at verse 18, to be controlled by the Spirit. Versus being controlled by the world's ideology. You know, we're, here's the deal. We're going to be ruled, we're going to be controlled by something. We're either going to be ruled and controlled by the Spirit of God using the Word of God, or we're going to be ruled and controlled by something else. A gospel man walks in wisdom. Finally, a gospel man walks in submission to authority. A gospel man walks in submission to authority. Look at, um, look at verse, look at verse um, 
chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, with a good will as to the Lord and not unto man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Gospel man walks in submission to authority. Men, there is a blessing to authority. And you say, you know what? You don't understand. You don't understand who I work for. Have you looked at our government? Have you seen the chaos? I mean, do you read CNN? Do you have any idea of the, just the, the sheer madness of what's going on in government? Look, God ordained authority. There is no perfect authority except for God. And yet, God has put governments in place. God has put, and there's no perfect government. We know God has put bosses in place. There's no perfect bosses. God has put husbands in place. And look around, there are no perfect husbands. And yet, there is tremendous blessing in submitting ourselves to the authority. I don't care if you're a CEO. If you're a CEO, you've got a board of directors that you're responsible to. And that is all part of God's good ordained authority. There is blessing in submitting to authority. It's all part of God's good design. So do you trust God enough? Because this is a trusting God issue. Do you trust God enough to submit to the imperfect authority? Do you think, you know, in 1 Peter, you read 1 Peter, 1 Peter has a lot to talk about as far as submission. And do you, under, do you realize when Peter is talking to these people, who they were, he was telling them to be subject to, who he was saying to place, willingly place themselves under their authority? You think government's bad? Try, try being under Nero. Read what Nero did to Christians. And yet, in 1 Peter, Paul doesn't talk about how bad Nero is. He doesn't talk about any of He says... He talks about it. He reminds believers that it's part of God's good plan. It's part of identifying with Christ. There's a blessing. And look at what he says in verse 6. With a sincere heart, as though you were serving Christ himself, because we are. So when I, when I rebel against the authority that I'm under, that imperfect authority, I'm, rebe I'm rebelling against God. He said, no, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. That's, that's what this says. When I, when I reject the authority that God has put over me, I'm rejecting God because God has ordained that authority. That's what it says. And then look, verse 9, because as we serve those in authority over us, we are serving our master, Christ. A gospel man walks in submission to authority. And then a gospel man walks, wears the armor of God while he's walking. Um, Chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. So a gospel man 
wears the armor of God while he walks. Why do we need armor? Because we're fighting. What are we fighting? We're fighting against the evil one, but we're fighting a fight of faith. Every one of us here is fighting to trust God in some area. Maybe it's struggling to trust God with the authority that he's put in our life. Maybe it's struggling to trust God in our marriage, loving a wife who is not very lovely right now. Maybe it's children who are making it tough. Maybe it's, again, at work, trusting a, um, a harsh boss. That might be part of your struggle in trusting God. Maybe it's not even knowing if you're going to have a job in a month. Maybe it's a, a diagnosis and you're struggling to trust God and his goodness and his purpose in a recent diagnosis. But there's a fight of faith. It says we fight against the schemes of the devil in verse 11. What, what's the schemes of the devil? Oh, so much we can say, but it's deceit. Everything that's good, everything that's true in the world is of God, and everything that's not true that is a lie is of the evil one. And so the schemes of the devil are believing lies and are believing deceit. Look at these weapons, and I just... I know I'm out of time, don't have time to unpack all these, but these, these weapons, breastplate of righteousness, gospel of peace, shield of faith, they all come to you. They're all yours through your union with Christ. Your faith, trusting God, it's going to be your shield against all the deception that exists in culture and in a secular worldview. And then now look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. We've got all these, we've got all these um, defensive things, but then there's a sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. It's the word of the Lord, men. We need, to be, we need to be men of the word. The battle, as I said earlier, is for the mind. Our minds have to be renewed. We have to be men of the word. We have to be men who read the word, who memorize the word, who meditate the word, who make much of the word. We need to be in the word because if we're not in the word, then our minds are going to be on something else, going to go somewhere else. We're going to interpret life and circumstances and relationships through our own sin-infected interpretation. We have to have the word in order to interpret all of that. We need to be men of the word. So let's wrap it up. Where, where do we, uh, let's just do this. Let's end where we began. How do you see yourself? How do you want others, how do you expect others to see you? How do you want others to see you? Please, 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 please don't believe the schemes of your simply your vocation or your title. God has certainly, definitely gifted you for your vocation and what you do and has put you where you are. But his purpose isn't to build a big old nest egg his purpose isn't for the fame of your name. He's put you there for a mission. He's put you there in order to proclaim him, to glorify him and make much of him. Don't believe the schemes of the evil one that your identity is somehow connected to something that you've done or to something that you haven't done in your past. If you're in Christ, you, have, you, you are so much more. You have been created for a grand mission. You've been... You've been created to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness of your, of your enslavement to sin, and he's called you into the marvelous light of his salvation and eternal, and eternal relationship with him. God created you and I to be visible representatives of the invisible God. 
God created us to be visible representatives of Christ. That is who we are. That is what we do. That is what we are called to do. That's what we've been entrusted with as servants of the Son and, and, and of the King. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. And Father, we, we confess that we oftentimes struggle with our identity and who we are and forget that we are in Christ. And so, Father, renew, if you would, and if you please, this reality. Lord, help us to live in the reality of who we are. Lord, help us to be visible representatives of Christ to those who experience us, to those who engage us in our homes and in our jobs and in our school and community and in the church. And we will give you the glory for it's only by your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let us stand and respond. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me then depart. No tongue can bid me then tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Word I look and see him there made an end of all my sin Because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is
my Savior and my Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon Lucas, Cole, thank you. All right, man. What we're going to do now is you have a seat, and in front of you there are some sheets with some application questions. Um, feel free to refill your coffee, go to the restroom, and at the